And I will open us up with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to do a comprehensive review of where we are in 1 Peter. So, let's pray, then we'll open our Bibles to 1 Peter, and we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings that you've given us. Lord, we are continually reminded of your provision for us. Lord, we woke up this morning. That's not a guarantee. We thank you for that. We had the ability to get here to church this morning. That's not a guarantee. We thank you for that. And most of us, Lord, if we wanted to eat this morning, we had food. And we thank you for providing that for us. We just ask, Lord, that as we are here, you would continue to work in us and prepare us to serve you. Lord, what you've called your children to do in Scripture is at times very challenging, but it's clear. And we thank you, Lord, that you've not just told us to do things and left us helpless. You've given us your spirit to enable us in conjunction with your word to do what you've called us to do. So, Lord, I pray that we would, as we've even been made alert to needs of small children at Lakeside, I pray that we would meet this need. Lord, in fact, I'm confident, I know the hearts of my brothers and sisters here, we will meet the need. I thank you, Lord, for showing it to us so that we have an opportunity to tangibly live out our faith towards some of the least among us. And Lord, as we today, for the first time in a couple of months, step back into the arena of First Peter, I pray that you would help me to teach clearly. Lord, I'm trying to review a lot of information, and in my zeal at times, I can speak too quickly and I can jumble things together. I pray that you would keep me from doing that. And I pray that you would be with each one of our hearts and ears so that we would hear correctly and we would be reminded of the ways in which we can apply truths we've already learned in our daily lives. And I ask, Lord, that you would, as we go through this material, this big review, that you would also prepare us for the teachings that will come ahead in the next weeks and months. Lord, we love you. We ask that you would be glorified by all that we do here today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I indicated, we're going to be doing a review this morning where we had left off. We're in the middle of a multi-part series of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. We have introduced these materials, we've talked about the early parts of these materials, and we have a couple of messages left. In fact... After two months, I didn't even remember until I started my studies this week that I already have an outline that's a four-part outline that we're dealing and walking through with these verses. But because it's been so long and because I needed the review for myself, I thought it would be appropriate for us to remind ourselves where we are. Two months is a long time. We all have to get back up to speed. But I think if you've been here for the teachings, this will come back to you relatively quickly. Now, just as a little bit of a reminder of the context of what we're studying and the foundation that undergirds everything, including 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25, we're dealing with a letter written to believers who were 
enduring a lot of struggles. In fact, Peter is talking about practical life and we're looking at practical life and actually the verses we're studying that we're going to come back up to speed on are some of the motivations for how to live out these practical things. But overarching all of this is the fact that God calls His children to be holy even in the midst of difficult times. The believers there had things hard. When they received this letter, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.6, they were distressed by various trials. There was a lot going on in their lives. Some of it had to do with personal issues. Some of it had to do in relationship to their means of sustaining themselves economically, how they worked. Some of it had to do with a hostile and oppressive government that made their lives difficult. And so Peter as he was going to be addressing these believers, spent a significant amount of time early in the book just reminding them of the blessings they had in their salvation. The blessings were both present and he alluded to what would happen in the future with the hope of heaven held out before them of the idea being you can endure this. God has redeemed you. Through His Son, God will preserve you, God will protect you, and ultimately you one day will be with Him for all eternity. You can imagine how comforting that would be to people who were struggling. Just be reminded, hey, you have hope. You are secure, even in the midst of all this chaos. Yet it's always the case with the Bible. The Bible always expresses compassion, but never endorses apathy. So these believers were going through difficulties. There was compassion for their trials, but by the same token, there was an exhortation that even in the midst of these hardships and trials, you live holy. You don't back up. You keep moving forward. In chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 14, it says, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That certainly is still the call to God's children today. You and I, we're called to be holy, to lay aside all the sinful things, and to walk in obedience. Put aside sin. Cling to the enduring word of God as the ultimate guide in life. In the midst of hardships and trials, the word of God will place you on the right path, will show you where to walk. You keep walking in obedience. And as we got into chapter 2 and a lot of those similar exhortations... Again, Peter was making it clear. God is building you up into something special. He uses the imagery of building stones and Christ being a chief cornerstone and all of these things of just picturing building up the household of God. And God has crafted each one of us and made each one of us uniquely a part of His kingdom, of the house and body He's building. Each one of us has a place. Each one of us is special. None of us or on the scrap heap of discarded rocks, we all have a special place in the building God's constructing. But again, we keep coming back to this idea that we're supposed to live a certain way. 
So in the verses immediately preceding a long section on practical living, we find in chapter 2, if you look at verse 11, Peter given this loving exhortation. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Uh, Again, this is another expression of the idea, be holy. We're living differently, but he adds an evangelical, an evangelistic aspect to this of the fact that when we live our lives, unbelieving world's watching. They're taking note. They're seeing what we do. In fact, in many circumstances, and it was true then, it's true now, the unbelievers are just slandering believers. Saying false things about them. Calling them things. Accusing them of things. And Peter's ultimate point was not to fight against the slander, but to live against the slander. Prove it false. Show that you're living differently. In fact... What he's saying is that if we live our lives in spite of the hostilities, in spite of the slander, if we keep being obedient, at least some of those unbelievers are going to be drawn to the gospel. And at some point, at least some of those unbelievers are going to give glory to God because of our lives and the testimony of the gospel in how we live. Now, that's a very brief, very brief overview of a lengthy series of teachings. From 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, up through what I just read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, it's really a foundational framework. We're called by God, we're redeemed by God, we have an ultimate hope in God, God is using us, God uniquely identifies us as His children, God is working in us, And in the midst of all of that, since we don't necessarily see the end result, we just have to live holy. And we've got to turn away from sin, and we've got to stay away from fleshly lusts that continually grab hold of us and try and pull us back in. And we recognize that we don't live on an island. We live in the midst of unbelievers who are watching us. Sure, they may accuse us. I used to tell people back in my lawyer days, if you're worried about... I used to phrase it this way. If you want somebody to keep you from being sued, I can't help you. Because it only cost at that time $125 to sue anybody. But if you want to keep from losing a lawsuit, I can help you. That's a different issue. Same way. I can't stop people from slandering us. As much as I lament the popular culture turning against our values, I can't stop that. But the Bible tells us that we can avoid the slander being true in us. We can live differently. They can be false accusations as opposed to true. And Peter, after these exhortations, begins to go through a series of very practical steps of how do we live excellently. How do we keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles in a hostile world when things are tough? And Peter, so far in our teaching, has covered two significant areas. But what you see, both in the areas that he's already covered and the areas that we will be introduced to when we step into chapter 3, Peter keeps coming back to a singular word. 
he keeps coming back to a principle that we've covered a lot and we're going to keep covering. It's something that is not just unique to Peter, but certainly in this context, he is driving it home as an inevitable and necessary part of what he's calling us to do. In the midst of mistreatment, when we're either persecuted or ridiculed or slandered or mocked for our faith, when we know people are watching us, Peter calls us over and over again to one thing. And it's a word that practically shows us how to live, but it's a word that leaves a bad taste in the mouths of most Americans, including me. The word is submit. Submit. Submission is not something that comes naturally to any human being. We're fallen. We really believe that because of Adam's sin, every human being born after that has been infected with this sin. And so our bent is to go against what's called us to do. And submission is contrary to our sin nature. Submission requires us with humility to place another interest I don't necessarily even mean a person, but another interest of some sort above our own self-interest. And Peter makes it clear that we are called to willingly lay down our rights, as we call them, and tolerate certain things that are offensive to us simply because we are Christians. What makes it tough is it's clear from the teaching, this is direction to believers. This isn't general truth to the whole world. This is exhortations to believers saying, you should live this way, you should submit, and what makes that tough is we rub elbows with a lot of people that aren't trying to submit. In fact, they're trying to get ahead. So again, this is hard for any human being with our sin nature, but in America in particular, it is ingrained in us from our earliest days that we have rights. And there's a sense in which we really do have rights. From the founding of our country, part of the rebellion against the tyranny of a monarchy was to equip individuals with rights that could stand up against authoritarianism and oppressiveness. And our government system, and I won't go down a separate side road, was set up for checks and balances to keep us from being oppressed. And we have individual rights that are valuable. I've been blessed to have been able to travel a little bit. I've not traveled as much as some people. I've traveled a lot more than some people. But I am... Aware, every time I step into the borders of another country, I lost a lot of rights. In America, I can defend myself. I'm, I used to be a lawyer. I can at least know enough to make everybody nervous. <laughs> In a foreign country, they don't care. They don't care. I've got a U.S. passport, so? Well, I'm an American citizen, the Constitution, so? Did you notice where you are on the map? So, 
in our humanness, in our fallenness, and even in our unique Americanness, rights are something fundamental. You're telling me to give up my rights? No way. You're telling me to lay down my own self-interest? And that's exactly what God, through Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in certain arenas is telling us to do. Now, the first area that he covered is in verses 13 through 17. I'm not going to read all the verses. This is already going to go long. But in verses 13 to 17, he's really talking about submission to the government. I will read verse 13, just briefly to remind us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, and then it goes on to say, or to the governors, meaning just the lesser governing systems. This is truth that applies across the generations, across the millennia. This was written 2,000 years ago. At the time, it was written the Romans dominated governmental systems. But this has just as much applicability today to us. And the idea is that no matter what, whether the government is good or whether the government is evil, we're supposed to submit to the government. There's a single exception, of course. If the government tells us to sin, then we say no, and we respectfully take our punishment. But apart from the government telling us to sin, we're supposed to submit. We're supposed to comply with the rules that are enacted, whether we like the government or whether we like the rules. If you recall, I went through some extensive teaching on the reign of Nero, who was in charge at the time this was written. And he makes our worst presidents, you take our worst five presidents, you add up all their vices, they don't touch Nero. And yet Peter did not have a problem saying submit. And this was a challenging teaching and it's hard for us because for most of us, if we have political affiliation, it's easy to submit when our party's in power. It's when those nasty other parties in power that makes it tough. And yet that's never an excuse for Christians. For years I've battled this temptation in my mind. When I was younger in particular, I used to be really stressed over our government and over elections. Other people here, I know, for example, Rig and Jean have lived in California. Dennis has lived in California. When you live in California, if you're conservative, you've got to get used to losing all the time. Every election, I could tell you who was going to win. It was the opposite of who I voted for. And it was consistent. But so what? According to Peter, we submit anyway. Christians should be the best citizens of any country and we should be the best citizens of America. And if we don't like the government laws and if we don't like the regulations, we submit anyway. I used a simple illustration about the speed limit. Well, it's silly. It shouldn't be 45. doesn't matter. It is. Are you going to go 45 or are you going to shake your fist at God and go 65? Well, okay, I'll only do 50 because they won't stop you for five miles over. Again, that's still rebellion. Because the law is something else. Taxes, Jesus was very clear, but it all fits under submission. Are you complying with the rules that are enacted? It's hard when the government's bad. 
It's hard when we don't like the government. It's hard when we feel that the government is hostile to our beliefs and values. But that's never an excuse in Scripture. We're not supposed to be the most rebellious citizens. We're not supposed to be the most complaining citizens. We're not being called to grudgingly submit with a shaken fist and a t-shirt that rails against the government even as we comply. No, it's a hard attitude that says, I know that when I submit to this government, even if it's corrupt, even if I despise it, when I submit, I'm living evangelistically to a fallen world because they're going to see something different. Now, in that realm... Most of us have opportunities to be submissive to the government at various times. But then Peter moves into a next arena that makes it even more challenging. And we covered this at length. Peter moves into what we would describe as our workplaces. Where we work. Beginning at verse 18 through verse 20, he calls us as employees to submit to our employers. Now, I covered this in great detail, and all the teachings are online if you ever want to listen to it again to be reminded of it, if you don't remember what I was teaching at the time. But this letter was originally written to slaves, people who truly were owned. The Roman system was such that for many people, being a slave was a normal state. It was a different type of slavery than American slavery, but it was no less legally entrenched. If you were a slave, you did not have complete rights. But in the context of the popular culture and of the overarching looking at the context of the teaching, this is directly applicable to modern employer-employee relationships. The principles are the same. I even alluded to some historical legal issues where if you look at old legal cases, when they're talking about employer-employee, they talk about master and servant because of the similarity of roles. And what we find in verse 18 is that this same principle is there. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Verse 19, for this finds favor, meaning with God. The word unreasonable, as we covered in great detail, is a very descriptive term. It means somebody who's morally crooked, perverse. I think if you could think of all the worst stereotypes of a boss, of somebody who's angry and mean and unfair and dishonest, immoral. You add it all up and it fits within this term unreasonable. And it's to those types of bosses that we're supposed to be submissive. Not just in our deeds, but with all respect. I mean, these teachings are very, very hard to live out. Who wants to take abuse from an employer? Who wants to be undone by an oppressive boss? But Peter makes it clear, if for the sake of our relationship with the Lord, we're willing to endure hardship, we'll receive God's favor. And it's interesting because he makes it clear, if you sin, meaning if you do wrong at work and you're punished for it, well, you don't get any pat on the back. You just got what you deserved. But if you're unfairly 
treated badly, if you've not done anything wrong and yet your boss still treats you in a wrong manner, and you can endure it for the cause of Christ, if you can submit anyway, God's favor shines on you. When you do right and you still suffer, God sees it and one day is going to acknowledge and reward your obedience. Now, I did do a side road that makes it clear that if your employer has legitimate grievance processes, you're not violating the duty to be submissive if you follow those processes. Or, for example, certain illegal behavior. Our system has set up, for example, something like sexual harassment. It's not wrong for you to follow a legitimate complaint process with the right attitude. Even Paul, at one point, appealed to Caesar. So availing yourself of legitimate rights is not necessarily wrong. The idea, though, is just on a day-to-day basis, well, my boss is a jerk. So what? Submit. My boss is not nice. Submit. Well, this assignment was unfair. Do it as unto the Lord. Well, that person gets favoritism and I don't. Submit. Because you're operating in a sphere in which your behavior is a testimony. I've shared most of my work life, still the majority of my work life, I didn't work at the church. I've been a pastor here since 2007, but all my prior work life was in a secular environment. I understand these things from a practical level. I understand of walking into a workplace with hundreds of people and there's not a believer in sight. So I know how hard this is, but that's what we're called to do. If everything is perfect, if you've got a great boss, if the government is wonderful, it can be hard just because we're sinners to submit. We still want our own way. But when the government is squeezing us and our bosses are unreasonable and we're not getting a fair shake, that's when this gets hard. How dare they? And what you understand is where it gets hard is in the heart because even if you don't punch somebody... In your heart, a lot of times you're just grumbling and moaning. And many Christians, and I've been guilty of this in my work life, can find ourselves by the water cooler gossiping and running down the boss and talking bad things. Management couldn't find their way out of a wet paper sack. They're a bunch of idiots. What are they doing in church? That should not be coming out of our mouths as believers. Again, we're prideful. We're opinionated. We're arrogant. If you're like me in any sense, I know the best way to do everything so I can always point out everybody else's faults. It's it's interesting because we see that it starts as little kids. I think the best evidence to prove that we are born sinners is to watch your kids grow up. Sure, they can mimic our worst character traits, but it's amazing. They learn how to look out for themselves. They look out for number one from the get-go. And that breeds into our adulthood. And we have conflict and frustrations and aggravations. And it all comes back to, I didn't get what I wanted. So Peter's focus on submitting is hard. And I have to tell you, when I start teaching on marriage in chapter 3, it's going to still be hard. And it's going to challenge us because the things that Peter says are counterintuitive but I'm reminding you everything he's already said is counterintuitive and yet the theology of the book says it's all possible for us 
That's the whole point of us being redeemed, of us being saved, of us being called out of that fleshly sinful life. It's to live differently and we can live differently even when it's a challenge. What I find interesting is as we step now closer into the verses that we're in the middle of covering, Peter gives us an explanation of why. At times you can almost see in the Bible the writer is anticipating the objections. The writer understands our sinful hearts because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit and the writer understands where our thinking goes and for every one of us, when I tell you to submit to the government, and, and I'm not saying you, I'm saying all of us, me included. When I say submit to the government, there's somewhere in our minds where we go, but. Or submit to an unreasonable, immoral, dishonest, abusive boss. There's somewhere in our hearts that says, well, that sounds good, but. And normally what it says is I can see how this applies to everybody else, but my unique situation, I know God's carved out an exception for me. I can see that would apply to all the other people. Amen, I like it, except that things are different for me. And what we see in verses 21 to 25 is that there is no separate me exception. In fact, what happens is all that we're being called to do is held up against the ultimate standard. And as I alluded to when I began introducing this material, what we're talking about has immediate context, reference, and explanation for submitting to an unjust government and submitting to an unjust boss. And it has prospective application to dealing with marriage when your husband is troublesome and your wife is not what she should be. But really, this is truth that applies in every area of life. If you think through and master the implications of these verses, even apart from their immediate context, this is life transforming. This is information that enables you to deal with any human relationship, any conflict, any circumstances. I set up my outline in the context of injustice because really that's what this is all about. What about when it's unfair to me? What about when it's unfair and I don't deserve this? Peter comprehensively and conclusively says, here's the answer. So follow along with me. I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. When I originally introduced this, I set this up in an outline format for truths 
for enduring injustice with godliness. Four truths for enduring injustice with godliness. And we really covered completely the first one and part of the second one. And I'm just going to bring us up to speed on how much we've covered there. Because now we're in the heart of things. And this is central to everything. The first point was this. The first truth for enduring injustice with godliness. The first point is this. God's children are called to suffer. God's children are called to suffer. We see this at the very beginning of verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. God tells us why we sometimes suffer in the workplace. God tells us why sometimes we suffer at the hands of an oppressive government. You've been called for this purpose. God called us. We understand that. God called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And part of the reason we were called was to suffer. Part of His plan for each of His children is to have some experiences like Jesus who suffered inexplicable injustice in this sin-filled fallen world. What happened to Jesus is the explanation for what happens to us in these arenas. For you have been called for this purpose. This summarizes our life on earth. You've been called since Christ also. The challenge is, particularly in our modern age, is there is a big section of teaching that says you're called to really live it up. You can be the master of your domain. You say the right things, you just have the right positive attitude and home runs all the day. I could quote you the titles of famous books that are basically saying at their heart, this is supposed to be a good time, it's all about you. And if you're suffering, you just got the wrong attitude. That type of easy believism, that type of prosperity thinking gospel really has no place in the New Testament. Now, let me be very clear. Of the billions of people on the earth, God's genuine children have more than any of them. We have hope. We have God's Spirit indwelling us. We have God's Word illuminated to us. We have a hope of eternity that is incomprehensible. We, of all people, we're the only ones that don't have to fear death. We know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We are truly blessed. Don't misunderstand me. The older I get, the more I marvel at how people live in this life without hope. How do you live apart from Christ? The funerals pile up the older you get. And the number of people you know that died and their lives went off the rails goes on and on in the hardships. All testimony that we live in a wicked world. But in the midst of it, we have things that no one else can comprehend. But that doesn't mean that we're always going to find favor with the government. That doesn't mean we're always going to have a happy-go-lucky work environment. 
That doesn't mean that all of our relationships are going to shine like the sun. It doesn't mean that we all walk around singing happy tunes because life is so good. No, sometimes life hurts. And as believers, we can't get derailed by injustice as though I can't believe it. I had no idea this was ever going to happen to me. John 15, verses 18 to 20. Jesus' words are recorded. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That can't be more clear. It's only God's grace that most of us in America don't live that out on a daily basis. We are truly blessed by the Lord that by and large most of the hardships pass us by. There are places today where people are going to gather to worship where they're endangering their lives by doing it. I'll never forget having a meal in Fresno with a believer from the former Soviet Union that had been arrested and beaten with pipes over a hundred times because he went to church on Sundays. Because they were trying to stop him, and guess what? Unlike some of us that said, that's one beating's enough, he just kept going. Okay, so they beat me. I'm going to worship. I'm going to gather together with God's people. So we praise the Lord that we haven't suffered as much as many people do, but we have to have an awareness that God called His children for this purpose. So when you're in the midst of a miserable work environment, you shouldn't be shocked and say, well, this is just unfair, even though it is. You don't have to like it in the sense of applauding evil. But according to Peter, you still submit. You still do your work as unto the Lord. In prior teaching on this, I went through multiple New Testament verses that say the exact same thing. This isn't an isolated verse that, well, maybe it's out of context. No, this is the constant teaching of the New Testament. So we need to remember God's children are called to suffer. But this is what takes away the me excuse. Well, but my situation is so unique... And I'll tell you up front, I hear that more in marital counseling than anything else. So where we're going, this is going to come out. But the second point, the second truth is this. God's Son is the perfect example. So God's children are called to suffer. God's Son is the perfect example. Meaning, He shows us what to do. And there's a Negative component, meaning here's what Jesus never did, so follow that. And then there's a positive component, this is what Jesus did. And the last time I taught, I I covered the negative side of this. It's all in verses 21, the second part of 21 and 22. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example... For you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 
I can't make too much of this. Leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. That's just a megaphone. It's just a loud call that every one of us do this. Just do what Jesus did. When the what would Jesus do bracelets, you know, they get mocked and then they lose their meaning. But the reality is we still do go back and what did Jesus do? Again, the idea of example, we understand it. The original language had to do with like teaching a kid the alphabet. You'd lay out a letter and they'd learn to trace it. In other words, it's precise. You just keep following it and you'll be doing things correctly. So the negative aspect, what didn't Jesus do? In other words, this is our example. It says, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. It's actually sort of four parts in these two verses, but they're very descriptive. And Peter is alluding to and quoting from Isaiah 53. Again, I went into this in more detail before. But the idea is that Partly, this is messianic prophecy being fulfilled, but it's also practical living for us. I won't read it, but Isaiah 53, 9, the second half, is really sort of the quotation from it. But who committed no sin is the injustice side of this. In other words, Jesus never endured anything because he had committed wrongdoing. We understand that. The scriptures teach this over and over. For example, 2 Corinthians 5.21 teaches that Jesus didn't have sin. Hebrews 4.15 teaches that Jesus never sinned. So part of his example is his sinlessness. If we're holy, we're not sinning. But the reality is, and what Peter is trying to drill into us, is that what happened to Jesus wasn't fair. That really is the word that trips us up. How many times did your kid, if you have kids, that you're raising say, well, that's not fair. In our household, we try and be compassionate and just say, get ready for life. You've got a lot of unfairness coming your way. Not to discourage you, but that's it till you die. It's all unfair. But the point is, what we're going to see with Jesus... And it's going to have application when you go to work tomorrow. It's going to have application when you look at something from the government. It's going to have application when you look at your spouse. Jesus didn't sin. What happened to him wasn't because of his own behavior. So, of course, we shouldn't sin at work and we shouldn't sin towards the government and we shouldn't sin to our spouse and we shouldn't sin towards anyone That's critical. Don't sin. That's the first example. Second, so he committed no sin, but then there's, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, just meaning Jesus never sinned with his mouth. It's a different aspect of the same truth, but it's the more challenging thing because a lot of us haven't necessarily acted something out, but we blurted something out. As a new believer... The worst career for somebody that likes to talk is a lawyer. 
particularly when you read a proverb that says, where words are many, sin is not absent. That's my whole life. I had a card in my pocket with that proverb on it. Where words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. Hardest thing for a lawyer to do is not talk. But I understood, without knowing all the theology I know now, I understood this is talking about something. One of the first teachings I ever did was to go through the Proverbs and reference all the times that there's a mention of the tongue or words. Jesus himself said in Luke 6, 45, it's recorded in multiple places, similar truths, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil for his mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. So we understand Jesus had a good heart. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He didn't sin with his words. I alluded to it at times. James 3, 2 makes a statement. If somebody doesn't stumble in what they say, they're a perfect man. Well, guess what? Jesus is the only perfect man. He truly was complete. He truly was the ultimate. So, we shouldn't sin, commit no sin, but also, nor does any deceit found in his mouth. We shouldn't sin with our words, even in the midst of injustice. That's where the grumbling has to stop. The complaining has to stop. That's what I struggled with. I was a rule follower. I would obey the law, but always moaning and groaning about the corrupt politician that had enacted it and the corrupt bureaucrats that I thought were making my life difficult. We're not supposed to do that. And it's the same in the workplace. Don't be a gossip. Don't be the one constantly undermining authority. The great proverb, again, it's one of these things I had to learn because I was an arrogant young man that thought I knew best and I was not someone who easily kept my opinions to myself. Proverbs 30.10 says, Do not slander a slave to his master. Just in the workplace, you're not running down other people. You're not the one constantly trying to build yourself up by breaking everybody else down. Ultimately, Jesus in every aspect of his life was perfect. We're called to emulate that. We're called to not sin. We're called to control our tongues, not to be ones who spread deceit. But the practical application of this in Jesus' life is what comes next. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. This really sums up things, because now the injustice is really coming to bear. I alluded to it, but for example, in Matthew 26 and then in Matthew 27, there's times where Jesus was called forward and people were accusing him of all kinds of things and the religious leaders were accusing him of blasphemy and they were piling on the accusations. And Jesus' response was, nothing. He didn't revile them. He didn't rear up and say, they're liars, they're this, they're this, they're this. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. I cannot comprehend that. I really can't. You're innocent. You haven't done anything wrong. You're being accused. You're on trial for your life. You're being accused of everything under the book, and yet you just say, hmm. Even 
lapsed in the area of physical abuse. Jesus was being punched and slapped and kicked and all these other things and spit on. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. That's the ultimate issue. When you're being treated in the, badly in the workplace, you don't retaliate. You don't get somebody back. I mean, that's tough. I was raised as a young boy and told if somebody, you don't go looking for trouble, but if somebody shoves you around, you shove back. Otherwise, you're going to be picked on and bullied. Sounds reasonable. But as adults, that's not what scriptures say. So Jesus was reviled. He didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. This is the part that blows my mind because Jesus was God. He alluded later to the fact that he could have called countless angels to him. Our human reaction as such, you, you start doing enough stuff to me, I'm going to lash out. Jesus never did. Again, they spat on him, they beat him, he was scourged. Even during all the suffering, he didn't utter any threats. In other words, he wasn't on the offensive. He wasn't fighting for his rights. We don't respond to injustice with injustice. In fact, and this is a challenge for you, let me sort of leave you with this because I'm getting to the end of today and we're running late on time. This isn't just about restraining from punching somebody that you want to punch. Do that. Don't punch them. This is where I truly marvel. Jesus was subjected to humiliating behavior. I think for some of us, at least for me, it'd be easier to endure physical pain than personal humiliation because my pride is so great. I think you could cut me with a knife, and I could endure it better than you cut me down from the perch that I have myself on. But when Jesus had endured all of this, they're accusing him and mocking him and spitting on him, and he's been ripped to shreds with scourging, and he's been pounded with a crown, and he's mocked, and the soldiers are mocking him, and they're putting a row. Uh, constant humiliation and then to be publicly without clothes being prepared to be strung up like an animal to lay in the sun for everybody to walk by and snicker at which they did and even the murderers on either side of you initially mocking you in the midst of this Jesus attitude was not enough wham lightning bolts Luke 23, 33 and 34. When they came to the place called the skull, where they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. My heart, Father, get them. Be careful in the workplace. Rather than just sit and pray that God's going to destroy all of these people, pray for them. You know, when you're enduring abuse, you should be praying for them. You've got a hope in heaven. They've got eternity in hell. 
They know what they're doing in one sense. There's another sense where just like Jesus, you could pray, Lord, they're lost. The God of this world, small g, Satan, has blinded them such that they're treating me like they would treat you if you were here. In fact, some of the mistreatment, if we're not sinning, if we're not doing those things, some of the mistreatment is explicitly because they see Christ in me. Lord, forgive them. It's a whole heart change. It's a hard attitude. It's hard for all of us, but this is what we're called to do. Now, this really gets us back up to speed. The next part of this and where we're going to pick up the next week is what did Jesus do? And we're going to look into this and explain this and talk about this because this is foundational of everything that comes around. But just looking ahead, here's what it is. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's going to be our goal. That's what we'll pick up the next time. So, I apologize that I went long and we didn't have time for prayer today, but let me close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your example. Lord, even as I teach, I can think of the number of areas where you gave me the opportunity to live this out in my life. And I thank you for the times I can remember where I was successful and I ask your forgiveness again for the times where I fell short. Lord, I pray for all of us. We live in a fallen world. We are subjected to ridicule and hostility. Lord, I thank you that the persecution that we endure is relatively mild, that very rarely do we suffer true loss of life or physical injury in our country for our faith. But Lord, the world is turning darker. It's always been dark. It always will be dark until you return. But we don't enjoy the favored status that we once did, even culturally in our society. Lord, help us to accept things. Help us to embrace the difficult concept of submission. Lord, help us think long and hard about what you actually did. In the midst of injustice, you're our example. When the government is not fair, you're our example. When we're not treated well at work, you're our example. When our personal relationships go south, you're our example. Lord, help us dwell on this. I thank you, Lord, for the salvation we have. And if there are any here, Lord, that have never truly known you, they're truly in darkness. They, they can't respond in the way I'm saying because they don't know Christ as Savior. I pray that the gospel will penetrate their hearts. Lord, I think of the number of years I was in church content with what I knew and yet I was an unbeliever and didn't know it. I pray that you would lift the veil on any amongst us. Perhaps even some who are here week after week, year after year, Lord, help us examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And if there's anyone still lost in their sin, I pray that they will see 
that Christ died for sinners, that he took our place on the cross, that he bore the wrath that we deserved so that those that place their faith in him could have new life. Lord, I pray for the rest of our day today, for our worship this morning. I also pray for tonight's service when we come back to church and we celebrate the Lord's table. Lord, the rest of the country is going to be remembering the Super Bowl and yet we have the opportunity to remember Christ's death. So I pray that this will be a truly worshipful day for all of us and that we will apply these truths to our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.